Buddhang Dhammang Sankhang Namasam Not really. It happens in the monastery here that somebody mentions to me, oh, so-and-so is having a day off or so-and-so needs to have a day off and I usually am quite quick to reply saying we don't have days off in the monastery because, well it's not because everybody's expected to be tapping away on the keyboards and cleaning the leaves out of the gutter and and cutting wood and hammering nails and being active on that level all the time, not at all. Rather, it's because the expression to have a day off means that we're not working, at least in the way I understand that expression. So we stop working. Whereas in the monastery, the primary work that we do is the work of cultivating awareness. That's, that's what we're here for. That's the work that we're doing. And the principle is that we emphasize and make an effort in cultivating awareness. The secondary work, like, yes, cleaning the leaves from the gutter or washing the car, or that work goes on as well. However, that's not the main point. So this policy I have of, of rejecting the idea that people are having days off is a way of encouraging ourselves to remember this, this work of cultivating awareness is, is something that we aim to invest in constantly. And there's a verse in the Dhammapada, verse 301, which says, disciples of the Buddha are fully awake day and night, delighting in cultivation. If you read the apocryphal story associated with that verse, it's about somebody having a sleep at night time, so I think we can safely assume that it's not suggesting literally that nobody sleeps, it's a rather uh, poetic uh, expression of where the emphasis needs to lie. If we are interested in realizing the potential benefit of this teaching, if we are aimed at awakening from unawareness, then the encouragement is to make that the priority. And the Pali word is jitta bhavana, or jitta, the heart, or, the, or awareness, and bhavana, cultivation. So cultivating the heart of awareness, that's the priority, that's the principle, that's the main aim of our being here. And in terms of practice, what that means is taking responsibility for where we're at on the heart level, the level of awareness. Do we know where we're at? Can we read where we're at? This is not talking about an idea of where we're at. It's not an abstraction on, on Dhamma. It's not, we're not just talking about what did the Buddha really mean by tanha? Is it desire? Is it craving? Is it wanting? What's the difference? We can think about those subjects and discuss those subjects. However, really, this work of cultivating awareness is aiming at 
another level. It's not merely thinking about it. Thinking's got its place for sure. Cultivation of awareness is something that's taking place in the whole being, and not just having the right ideas about what the Buddha meant. So that means, for instance, with regards to like tanha, in English we say craving, sometimes it's translated as desire. What's the difference between desire and craving? Well, we can discuss English or French or German or Italian, the Pali word of tanha, what does it really mean? The real question is, what does it mean on the heart level? Can we feel the difference between a wholesome impulse, which we might call wanting to be virtuous, which I'm sure we wouldn't disagree with the value of that, wanting to be virtuous, wanting to cultivate integrity, wanting to cultivate honesty, wanting to cultivate kindness, wanting to cultivate clarity of heart and mind, all of these things we could potentially agree are wholesome. What Can we feel an impulse, such an inclination, and the difference between that and that contracted feeling of demanding that we become more peaceful? Because surely there is a difference. And the Buddha encouraged the wholesome aspirations. He didn't encourage craving and demanding. And jitta bhavana, or cultivating awareness, involves coming into the body, into the heart, into the feeling center, and really examining, inquiring, what is our relationship with wanting? What is our relationship with, with anger? What's the difference between anger and hatred? What is our relationship with delusion, with fear? What's the difference between fear and anxiety? Is there a wholesome fear? You know, to quote Ajahn Chah in this matter, he would say, if you're about to run across the motorway, well, you should be afraid because it's dangerous. And, and what fear is and is a, a message in the body. The body gives off some adrenaline. It constricts the blood vessels and you've got more energy. You can move quicker. That could be perfectly functional. However, if we are clinging to that impulse that we refer to with the word fear, then it turns into something else, which is unwholesome and unhelpful. To know this, to read this, we really need to learn to make a different sort of effort. The effort we start off with by learning about Dhamma, learning about the Buddha's teachings, learning about how to be peaceful, learning about how to meditate, and then taking it to another level, which is more feeling our way through experience. And if we can't do this, then we're really obstructed. Like you know, this feeling, maybe a feeling of fear that you have. And what is this feeling of fear? Is this feeling of fear something that I'm generating right now because I'm actually in danger? Like there's a dog with rabies about to bite me, well, in which case you should be afraid and get out of the way quickly. Yeah. 
Is that the sort of fear? Is like, is it an intelligent, suitable, appropriate fear? Which is, that's what I refer to as present generated fear. Or is it some old pattern that's been triggered? Is it some fear that somebody said something, somebody in a position of authority maybe, said something to you and then you have an attack of anxiety and an unreasonable level of fear gets activated. What's that? Can we read that? Can we allow for the possibility that we have over the years built up habits of denying such things as fear? You know, we, we feel fear at a time in our life when we don't feel ready or able to deal with it. And so we dismiss it. We push it into unawareness. And once we've discovered that option, there's an unfortunate possibility that we'll do it on a regular basis. And, and instead of cultivating a, a conscious relationship with fear, instead of meeting fear with awareness and according with it intelligently, skillfully, carefully, we have an unconscious relationship with fear. And as we've spoken about many times before, that can build up into a backlog of denied fear. And then we have unreasonable fear reactions. So you look, for instance, at the news and you see what's going on and, and then your mind starts coming up with all sorts of paranoid conspiracy theories about what's happening because basically it's, it's chaotic. It's intensely complex and chaotic. If we don't have a conscious relationship with fear, if we don't know how to listen to fear and learn from fear, then we can have an overly simplistic assumption about what's going on as a reaction, as a way of dealing with this unreasonable fear. So we need to be able to tell, is this present generated fear or is this, is this old unmet fear? We need to be able to read that. And we're not going to do that in our heads alone. We need to come into our bodies and examine our relationship with fear or with greed, or with anger. Or maybe this feeling of obstruction this, that I'm experiencing, maybe this is, it's not present generated fear or old unmet fear, it's, it's something that we picked up from somewhere else, what I refer to as adopted, adopted dukkha, present generated dukkha, old unmet dukkha, and adopted dukkha. If we're cultivating awareness in our whole being, then we're gradually, hopefully, building up the skill to not just analyze by thinking about the different potential causes for the feeling of obstructedness that limits us. We're able to let go of our thinking and rather come down into the body, into the heart, into the guts, and perform our own feeling investigation. Most of us would be aware, I'm sure, of the Buddha's teachings on the, the Satipatthana Sutta, where just this concern is being addressed, where the setting up of the foundation of disciplined attention, of Sati. The Buddha gives a teaching for cultivating sati in regards to the whole being, starting with the body. The body 
is the, the coarsest aspect of our being and, and it's important that we have a well-established foundation of sati in the body. If we, all we have again is, is what's referred to as mindfulness in our heads, which is regrettably often the exercise that people are engaged with when they're talking about mindfulness, is they're just watching their thinking. And it doesn't do the job. It's better than having nothing. It's better than just reacting and projecting. In fact, it can be the first step. Uh, however, if all we've got is a conceptual level of mindfulness, then it's, it's like if you're, if you're hungry and so you pull down a recipe book and start reading about food. That might be the first step in doing what needs to be done, which is find some food, prepare it, and eat it. If it's all we do is reading about and thinking about food, it can, in fact, make things worse, make us more hungry, more unhappy. And so it is with Dhamma teachings. We can read a lot about the teachings and unfortunately end up thinking that we know something. Possibly even a little pleased with ourselves because we think we know something. When in fact we don't know anywhere near enough to know in the way that the Buddha was teaching, the way that the great teachers were teaching, we need to come down out of our heads and start bringing awareness, cultivating awareness in the whole being, you know, feeling what we feel. And if we do this, if we exercise this kind of attention, then it's quite likely that we will very quickly pick up on this, as I'm referring to this, this backlog, all this pain that we didn't look at at the time all the disappointments. And if we have a bit of a build-up, a bit of a serious backlog, and it can be quite daunting. So when we engage in this kind of practice, it's important that we know how to inhibit the compulsive judging mind. CJD, compulsive judging disorder, makes a mess of everything. And so if we start practicing and getting a little subtle, a little sensitive, a little reflective, and my goodness, look at all this greed, hatred, and delusion going on. And, and then if we judge it and say it shouldn't be this way, that makes it worse. In this exercise, in this training and cultivation of the heart of awareness, let's be very careful that we don't get pulled into the, that particular vortex of compulsively judging, saying it shouldn't be this way. Depending on how much energy we have invested in avoiding life, it can take a really long time, a really long time. And, and so the smart thing to do is to settle in for the journey. The foolish thing to do is to idealistically cling to the idea, I'm going to get enlightened in this life. And, well, that might be a suitable aspiration for people who have a particular accumulation of barami, that might also just be conceit and build up more stress. Uh, the disposition of somebody cultivating awareness uh, 
is one who is willing to meet themselves where they're at. And if where we're at is we encounter a feeling of obstructedness, what we do is we bring awareness to that. We don't conjure up an idea of what it would be like to not feel obstructed. Rather, we get interested in feeling obstructed. What is the feeling of obstruction in the body, in the heart? Like when we start to bring attention to the heart and follow the suggestion of feeling what we feel. Maybe what we encounter is a sense of painful contraction. If we then slap a judgment on it and say it shouldn't be this way and then we resist it even more, that's making it worse. Rather, we need to prepare ourselves with a willing, interested sensitivity to what is, to actuality, not to the fantasies about how things might be. It's okay in the beginning to have fantasies about enlightenment and awakening and liberation and freedom from suffering. That can be an inspiration. However, when we get into the practice, we've got to let go of our fantasies and be more willing to meet ourselves right here. If right here, right now, there's this feeling of obstruction, of this numbness maybe in the heart, or maybe it's fire, maybe it's heat. This when we look inside, we feel this anger, this indignation, this unreasonable rage. Or, or maybe it's, it's a, a bitter sense of sadness, whatever it is. Rather than slapping a judgment on it and saying it shouldn't be this way and there's something wrong with me because I've got all these problems, rather the appropriate thing to do would be to congratulate ourselves, to compliment ourselves, because to make an effort, to make this kind of effort to turn away from the worldly conditioning, which says that contentment comes from gratifying desire, to turn away from that story and to really look at our relationship with desire, to really feel inwards, to stop looking outwards and sensing outwards and smelling outwards, but to turn inwards and feel inwards and listen inwards, to go against the conditioning of the world, that takes daring. You know, it's going against the story of the world, that story that gratifying desire leads to contentment is a con, it's a complete con. Heedlessly gratifying desire just builds up an addiction. What leads to contentment is the cultivation of nekama barami, and this is what the Buddha was encouraging, going against the story of the world, building up nikamma barami so that we can inhibit the tendency to trigger resistance to the dukkha when we meet it. And remember, we have to meet it. The Four Noble Truths is going to study dukkha, study the cause of dukkha. The other part of liberation from dukkha, that's nice. However, that comes later. First, we've got to meet what is this feeling of obstruction, no judgment. And no matter how contracted and obstructed we feel, appreciating the good effort that we're making to go against the habits and really gently, interestedly meet ourselves here. And in the process of coming to terms with 
these feelings of obstructedness. It's helpful to build up a repertoire of skillful means uh, because these obstructions are really tricky. If all we've got is just one technique, which is what fundamentalist religions teach, there's only one technique, there's only one system, and it's ours, and don't even talk about other systems, don't read about other systems, just follow our system. That fundamentalist approach, which refuses to allow organic, authentic interest to guide our attention, that overly simplistic approach might well lead us in a direction whereby when we meet the complexity, the actual complexity of unawareness, that we fall short. Rather, the Buddha and the great teachers encouraged many skillful means. You read the teachings like the record of Ajahn Chah's life and different skillful means that he used and, and to, so as to truly come into a conscious relationship with that with which he felt obstructed. I find three approaches, one of cutting through obstructions, those low energy obstructedness, not very complex, just cut through it. Seeing through, more complicated, and then burning through, extremely complicated and challenging. Again, if we're bringing this cultivation of awareness down into the whole being, the whole body-mind, and feeling our way through the feeling of obstructedness, then this is useful to have these skillful means already established to be able to read for ourselves, is this sense of obstruction something just cut through? Or is the attempt to cut through it just repressing it? Am I repressing this feeling, this feeling of anger, this feeling of fear? Am I really denying it and just pushing it down into the basement of unawareness? Or is it something that's got very low energy and just cut it, just say no, and it's gone? We need to feel our way through that. We can't just think our way through it. Again, thinking are abstractions on feelings. And we need to come down and learn to see for ourselves. And there's a, a low energy sense of obstruction and just cut through it. Or is it more complex? We need to actually turn towards it and look into it and analyze it and investigate it and maybe talk to other people about it. How did you deal with this when you encountering this kind of an obstruction. In other words, study it and, and we see through it and, until the resistance falls away and the energy that was locked in that feeling of obstructiveness is reintegrated into the heart again. Or is it the burning through level where the Buddha talked about some obstructions are so difficult, so complex that you just have to grit your teeth and push your tongue up against the roof of your mouth and endure it. Now that's not blind repression. You say, well, that sounds dangerous. Well, there is blind, heedless repression, but that's not what we're talking about. This is heedful suppression, intentionally choosing. Right now is not the time to try and deal with this. Right now the time is to go for a walk, take a shower, talk to somebody. We need to be able to tell we need to feel for ourselves 
what is our relationship with this obstruction and what is the level of intensity of this obstruction. So as we find our way through these layers of denied life, hopefully we learn to experience the, the falling away of resistance and we're left with here and now dukkha. We start to see that this moment of irritation that I might be feeling has got space around it. We're not dealing with an intense, almost unimaginable level of anger or rage or fury anymore. It's manageable. And maybe if we reach this level of practice, maybe we find that most moments of obstruction are manageable. Whereas for years we've been seeing through, cutting through, burning through our backlog. And if we didn't understand that that's what it was, then we could jump to conclusions about these obstructions. You might think, well, they're ultimate, they're permanent. Now, if we have put the effort in skillfully enough, consistently enough, and then developed a level of competence, which is what it is. It's like being competent in anything. If you want to become a, a competent violinist, you know, it takes many, many hours, or a piano player, or, or a woodcarver, or, or any other particular craft or skill or profession. You, you want to become a, a competent surgeon. You can't perform the most intricate difficult surgery straight away just because you read a few books. We've got to, first we read the books, learn about the surgery, and then we are apprenticed with somebody who's competent and we learn from them. And still we've got to put in the hours and hours and hours. And so it is with developing competence on the level of cultivating the heart of awareness, so the hours and hours we put on the cushion, on the walking meditation track until we've burnt through, seen through, cut through the backlog, and maybe we start to discover, oh, this is manageable. This feeling of disappointment is just, it's just a feeling, and it's got space around it. We have a new perspective on the here and now dukkha, and a clearer sense of how we're making it worse by resisting it, and that's a relief. For some who reach this stage of practice, if they, if they teachers, something interesting occurs whereby they start talking about practice in a very different way because they're no longer dealing with the backlog. They're no longer struggling in the way that they used to. And maybe they start talking about practice as if it's easy, as if, oh, you just have to be in the present moment. Or, or maybe you don't have to practice. Everybody's already enlightened. Well, they didn't, get, they didn't get to where they're at by holding on to such fanciful ideas. So when you listen to teachings from teachers who talk like that, you think, well, is that how they were practicing for 10, 20 years? Were they always talking like that? Probably not. This path of practice, which we're encouraged to learn to 
constant in the kind of effort that we're making. It's supported by the honesty that means we could admit where we're at right here and now. Admit that feeling of obstructiveness, no judgment, feel it. What is it asking for? Is it asking for the energy of a spiritual warrior? We've got to meet it head on and deal with it. Or is it asking for gentleness and sensitivity and kindness and patience? Nobody else can tell us that. Books can't tell us that. Uh, Our feeling awareness is more likely to be able to tell us that. In the spirit, there's an interesting story related in the scriptures where the Buddha recognized that there was this man in a village that was ready to see through the obstructions of unawareness and gain insight. And so he decided to go there and give him just the right teachings that he needed at just this time. However, when he reached the village, and it turned out that this guy had been working in the fields all day long, and he was hungry. And so the Buddha didn't rush into teaching him the Four Noble Truths. He first he asked the others in the village to feed him, to deal with that which could potentially be an obstruction to his understanding. And once this fellow was fed, then he gave the teachings. And So it is with us that we can have these ideals of how we want to be in our practice, where we want to be in our practice, and then there's also the present moment receptivity of where we're at in our practice. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>